0: Welcome to this special presentation of the unabridged audiobook of Afterlife, a rainy day investigation, on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Afterlife was inspired by a real-life investigation conducted by co-author and parapsychologist Lloyd Auerbach that was the case that made him believe in ghosts. Although Afterlife is book two in the series, you can enjoy it as a standalone story. However, you'll likely also want to listen to Near Death, The novel that introduces Dr. Jennifer Day, anthropology professor and parapsychologist, to her skeptical partner, former police detective, Nate Rainey. In Afterlife, Danny, a young boy, makes friends with the ghost of a woman, Maureen, who used to live in the house his family has moved into. He's the only one who can see and hear her. Maureen died 15 years earlier, trying to make her escape from a botched bank robbery, at which time she had millions of dollars in cash and valuables. Unfortunately, she can't remember where. But that's not going to stop her old partners from doing everything they can to find their long-lost treasure, no matter what the cost. If you enjoyed this free presentation, I hope you'll take a minute to post a review on Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads, as well as your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to listen to Near Death, along with my weekly short stories, here on Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs. And now, Part 16 of Afterlife, A Rainy Day Investigation By Rich Hosick, Arnold Rudnick, and Lloyd Auerbach Chapter 62 Dave and Emily focused cameras on the volunteer spelunker who Chief Lewis had recruited to check out the bottom of the abandoned well. It was exactly where Danny had told them Maureen had said it would be. Emily seemed nonplussed by all the events, though a little put out by being dragged into the woods. I don't do nature, she had told Jennifer but even Emily had trouble saying no to Dr. Day. Dave was fighting off a swarm of gnats buzzing around his head and slapping at mosquitoes attacking his neck and arms. How come the bugs aren't bothering you, he asked Emily. They wouldn't dare, she said flatly. Jennifer approached, the foreman's close behind, this time with both of their children. This is exciting, Jennifer said. Make sure you get a close-up of them dropping into the well. Got it, Emily replied, holding up a handheld camcorder. She pushed her way through the weeds up to the police tape the officers had strung around the site. Seriously, Dave said, noticing that no one else except him was battling the bugs. Can I go back to the van? Jennifer had spent part of the night unloading her personal belongings from the van into one of Sam's garages. He didn't ask her any questions, but had offered to let her use a guest room for as long as she needed. She told him she would think about it. You can't miss this, Dave, Jennifer said. There could be a million dollars in that well. I'll watch the tapes later he said. Jennifer changed the subject. Have you seen Nate? Dave scanned the crowd of people and saw Nate standing behind a group of cops. He's over there. Jennifer was surprised Nate had yet to remind her that his prediction had come true. Maureen had left the final clue to where she had hidden the money where Danny could find it. The note she had left for Dale, and the message, Wish you were here, with the word wish underlined. And now they were here, at the wishing well do we get to keep the treasure? Danny asked. Greg smiled at the question. Well, it doesn't really belong to us, but the chief said there might be a reward. Cool, Danny replied. Can I get an American girl, Dal? Daisy asked. If there's a reward, it's going straight into your college funds, Marcia said. The kids groaned. Looks like they're getting ready to go down, Jennifer announced. At the well, the spelunker checked his harness, made sure his line was secure and lowered himself down into the deep hole it was about six feet in diameter so he was able to walk his way down the stone wall of the well jennifer had managed to talk the chief into allowing her to mount one of bits portable sports cameras on the man's helmet whatever he saw they would have a front row seat the cave diver disappeared down the well it was nearly 30 feet deep according to the preliminary inspection they had found the site overgrown with weeds there had been some loose boards over the top of the well whose walls extended only a few inches above ground level. If they hadn't been looking for it, they would have missed it completely, as had probably countless treasure hunters over the last decade and a half. They had cleared out the area and had to hike in the equipment they needed about a half mile, as there wasn't even a fire road leading to the site. Everyone held their breath as they waited for word from the spelunker. There's something here, he announced. They dropped the second line down with a basket on the end of it. Several minutes later, the spelunker tugged on the rope and the officers at the top of the well carefully hauled it back up. Emily managed to get a good angle with her camcorder. Jennifer and the foreman's crept as close as the police tape would allow. The basket appeared. In it was what looked like a pile of dead leaves. I set it on the ground where they had spread out a tarp and carefully dumped the contents of the basket out. Among the leaves and twigs was a dark bundle the size of a large duffel bag. It was frayed and there were holes in the fabric. A rat scurried out of the pile. Daisy shrieked at the sight of the creature and buried her face into her father's leg. Jennifer cringed as well. Awesome, Danny said. Yeah, Ellie agreed. An officer wearing a pair of purple nitrile gloves poked at the bag, making sure there wasn't any other surprises inside. He found a zipper and pulled on it. Instead of unzipping, the zipper pulled free from the fabric of the duffel bag, creating an opening. He reached inside and pulled out what looked like shredded newspaper. Emily zoomed in on the paper in the officer's hand. It was money, chewed into bits over the years by whatever creatures had made the well their home, and the years of weather that had soaked it with rain. Oh well, Greg said. At least we have a good story. The officer kept digging. There were a few bills that were partially intact, but none of it seemed redeemable. He also found a few coins. Items that had been stored in the safe deposit boxes Maureen and Dale had dumped into the duffel. Still, nothing of any life-changing worth. It looked like Dale and Liam's quest for the lost loot would have been fruitless, even if they had been successful. Then he came across a small, flat wooden box. It, too, had been chewed on, but was mostly intact. When he picked it up, it fell into two pieces, and inside, nestled in a lining of black velvet, was a string of sparkling diamonds. The officer carefully lifted it up for everyone to see. It was the necklace, the one that had been the focus of years of speculation. Had it been in the bag Marine had made off with, or had the owners made a false insurance claim? The answer was shining brightly as it hung off the officer's fingers. Whoa, Marcia said, awestruck by the sight. Looks like it's Harvard for you and Daisy, Jennifer said to Danny. What's Harvard? he asked. Okay, let's get this bagged up, the chief ordered. He leaned over the well. Anything else down there? Just looks like some animal skulls and muck. All right, come on back up. The officer slid necklace into an evidence bag. The chief took it and grabbed a mineral envelope from the evidence collection kit. He dropped the necklace into the envelope, sealed it, and set it into a larger paper bag. He addressed a nearby officer. Make sure you don't lose that, he warned. He turned to the rest of the crew. I'm going to head back to the office. I think the owner of that necklace is due some good news. He trekked off into the woods, following the recently trodden path back to the road where they had left the vehicles. Jennifer looked around for Nate. He had been strangely avoiding her all morning, insisting on driving up on his own. Now he seemed to have disappeared. Org! Dave shouted, waving his arms around his head. Can I go now? Jennifer looked at Dave. He was alternately swatting whatever was biting him and scratching his skin all up and down his arms. He's funny, Daisy observed, laughing. Danny joined her. All right, looks like we have what we need, Jennifer conceded. So what happens next, Greg asked. I mean with you, Jennifer shrugged. Nothing. I think we'll put together a video and some written accounts, and then we'll put it away in our files. We'll be sure to keep your names out of it. I'm not sure how much good that's going to do, Marcia said, waving at the crowd of people around the well. I don't think we're going to be able to keep this quiet. I wouldn't worry too much, Jennifer said. There'll be some other story that comes along, and before you know it, you'll be old news. Chief Lewis made the half-mile hike back to the side road where he left his car. When he got there, he was surprised to see Nate Rainey waiting by his vehicle, leaning against the driver's side door. Hey, Nate. Didn't see you leave. Thanks for your help on this. If you're open to working in Danville, I can certainly spread the word. Maybe get you a little business. Thanks, Nate said. The chief approached his car, but Nate didn't move. He smiled awkwardly. Something else I can do for you? Turn yourself in, Nate said. Chief Lewis seemed confused. Turn myself into what? I know you are connected to Everly MacDonald. It never made sense that they could have pulled off that robbery by themselves. But I guess even a mastermind like yourself couldn't account for a little girl wandering off in the middle of the night. The chief laughed. Mastermind? Nice one, Nate. Come on, you must be dying to tell someone, Nate goaded. All those years, planning the perfect robbery, only to have those incompetent idiots you partnered with drop the ball. The chief shook his head, refusing to concede Nate's accusations. Everly had all the skills he needed to pull off the job, Nate shrugged. Maybe, but he needed that inside man to make sure the silent alarm remained silent. Couldn't get away with that in a big city like San Francisco a place like Danville? All it took was a disgruntled cop and a desperate unemployed sap beaten up by the system. Unfortunately, that young woman got caught up in your scheme and paid with her life. Tell me, was it your idea for Liam the Shooter before he got his hands on the loot, or did he come up with that boneheaded idea on his own? I don't know what you're talking about, Neat. I'm talking about the fact that I heard you took early retirement over an internal affairs investigation. Really? A good cop like you believe in gossip? I thought you were above such things. Well, I wasn't ready to put much stock in that rumor until I noticed your reaction when you saw it was Dale Everly crawling out of the mine. I don't think I reacted at all. No, you didn't. Even though Officer McDonald had told you, he had spoken to him earlier and had dismissed him as being involved. The chief laughed. Well, you certainly can read a lot into nothing. And then when we returned to the car's, You and MacDonald took Everly back to the station before heading to the hospital. I imagine you had quite a conversation with them. What did you promise Everly? A chance to escape? You're really testing our friendship, Nate. Move aside. I have business to take care of. Okay, Nate said. Just hand over the necklace and I'll let you go. The chief sighed. The necklace is in an evidence bag back at the well. I saw the switch. What did you drop in there? Your handcuffs? the necklace is in your pocket i offered to help you out nate now you're just throwing away all that goodwill chief lewis pulled his gun from his holster and aimed it at nate move aside or what you'll shoot me how long do you think you'll be able to protect your stooges if you do that it won't take long for everly and macdonald to flip on you if they're charged as accomplices those fools won't flip They know if they try to throw me under the bus, there's no place they can hide. So you're just going to take off with the loot and leave them to rot in jail. Louis laughed again. You think this ends with me? What does that mean? Nate asked. You were right. That Hummer did run you off the road. But I'm not the one who sent it. Can't you see that this is bigger than a small-town heist? I thought you were smarter than that. It was Nate's turn to smile. You're right, I am. Chief Lewis heard something behind him. He turned to find two sheriff's deputies, their firearms drawn, and pointed at him. He lifted his hands into the air. Nate took the gun from the old chief, then fished the evidence bag from his left pocket. He held the diamond necklace up so that the late morning sun hid it inside the transparent bag. I think you should probably read Chief Lewis' his rights, Nate suggested. The deputies did so as they handcuffed him. The necklace was now evidence in the case against him. Nate handed it off to them as a county sheriff's car pulled up and they stuffed Lewis into the back seat. We'll be in touch, one of the deputies said to Nate. You'll want this, too. Nate pulled a pen out of his jacket pocket, clicked it, and handed it to the deputy who raised an inquiring eyebrow. It's a spy pen. I've got our whole conversation on there. I'm sure your tech guys will know what to do with it. Just make sure you send it back to me when you're done. Those things aren't cheap. The trooper dumped the pen into another evidence bag and left Nate with a handshake. As they drove off, Jennifer, Emily, Dave, and the foremans emerged from the woods. Jennifer noticed that the chief's car was still there, but there was no chief. She turned to Nate. Did we miss something? Chapter 63 Nate sat in the office he shared with Jennifer and stared at the shrinking balance of his bank account on his laptop screen. When they had started this enterprise all those months ago he was in a different place in his life he was recovering from a career-ending injury and had nearly died himself saving jennifer's life at the end of their first case together she was being persecuted by the university administration and her staff was without a home it made sense to combine their resources and share expenses although he hadn't actively participated in the publicity that case had engendered he was confident at the time that it would generate business for him as a private investigator. But most of the cases that dribbled in were people convinced they were being haunted or possessed or getting psychic messages from aliens. His friends from the force had thrown him some work, but nothing major. Nothing that required more than a day's worth of effort. Now, after more than six months, the money was still going out faster than it was coming in. He had always been a gadget freak, so when Jennifer would drop hints about some new camcorder or motion sensor that Bits had recommended, he more often than not added it to the assets of the business, expecting that once they had a few more high-profile cases under their belts, there would be a solid return on the investment. But those cases never materialized. And in addition to the office equipment and investigative gear, Nate's grocery bill had skyrocketed, as he found himself providing a couple meals a day for three college-age kids. Nate reached into his jacket pocket and pulled out his prescription bottle. Up until about a month ago, He left it in his medicine chest, but after the last surgery, he kept it nearby so it could knock back the pain when it became too much, and since he had aggravated his shoulder yet again a couple nights ago, manhandling Dale Everly, it was becoming more and more difficult to keep the pain at bay. He opened the bottle and tapped a pill into his palm. He stared at it for a moment, then added three more and tossed them into his mouth. He followed them with some coffee, then sealed the bottle and slipped it back into his pocket, He'd see his doctor, he promised himself, just as soon as things settled down. Something cold and wet brushed against his left palm. He looked down and saw Madge sitting beside him, expecting him to devote his attention to scratching behind her ears. Nate obliged, and Madge squeezed her eyes shut with pleasure. Maybe I should send you off to drug-sniffing school, so one of us can earn a few bucks, he suggested. Jennifer breezed into the office, a smile on her face. Nate automatically assumed she had spent the night with Sam. Not that she didn't have every right to date whomever she wanted. He just wished it didn't bother him. Jennifer was very extroverted and connected with people easily, the near polar opposite to Nate. He always approached people with suspicion, an occupational hazard from his time as a police detective. She started humming. You seem like you're in a good mood, he noted. It's a good day. We helped save Danny, and the foreman's have agreed to let us do some follow-up interviews when things settle down. Jennifer looked at Nate and noticed immediately something was weighing heavily on his mind. What's got you down? I thought you'd be happy. If it wasn't for you, Lewis and his accomplices would have stolen that necklace. Again. And probably disappeared into the wind. Yeah, I put the guy who was going to try and throw some P.I. work my way in jail. I think I need to work on my business plan. I'm sure things are going to turn around for us, Jennifer said. Yeah, he said, unconvinced. How's that new course of yours coming along? I guess you've been talking with Dave. He does most of the talking. Well, to be honest, it was really bothering me. But even though it won't be an official class, a couple colleagues are going to help me set it up as a non-credit seminar, which is already part of the department budget, so the dean can't stop it. Good for you, Nate said. I'm glad everything's working out. Jennifer could sense there was something going on behind Nate's sarcastic facade. What's really going on? she asked. Nate wasn't planning on having this conversation today, but maybe this was the right time. Maybe it was time to admit that this experiment just wasn't going to work. He could get his life and his home back. Maybe he could apply to one of the large investigator firms in the city. He heard they paid ex-cops very well. The phone rang. Probably the press, Nate assumed. He wasn't interested in taking a spin on another one of Jennifer Day's paranormal carnival rides. Aren't you going to get that? It could be another case. Let it go to voicemail, Nate said. Emily appeared. She answered the phone. Rainy day investigations, she droned. Nate brought a hand up to his face. This wasn't going to be easy. "Uh Uh-huh, Emily said into the phone in her usual monotone, betraying nothing about who might be calling or for what reason. Yes, Dr. Day is here. Hold on. Emily handed the phone over to Jennifer. It's Marcia Foreman. So much for a new case, Nate thought. They probably were going to send him a bill for Danny's pajamas. Jennifer took the phone handset from Emily. This is Dr. Day, she said. After a moment, she added, That's wonderful news. Congratulations. She covered the mouthpiece so she could fill Nate and Emily in on the news. They heard from the company that insured the necklace. Apparently there was some sort of reward. Nate remembered seeing something about a $10,000 bounty in the research he had done into the case. A nice start to the kids' college funds. Jennifer kept listening, but stopped giving Nate and Emily updates about the other end of the conversation. Her eyes widened, and she collapsed backward into her chair. Yes, of course. Thank you. We really appreciate that. Appreciate what? Emily asked. But Jennifer ignored the question. I'll tell him. Thanks again. She handed the phone back to Emily, who returned it to its base. She looked at Nate, and appeared to be struggling to speak. That's a first, Nate joked. Jennifer Day at a loss for words. So, technically, it's not a reward, she began. She swallowed before she continued, as if her mouth had dried out. It's a finder's fee. Ten percent of the insured value of the item. How much was it insured for? Emily asked, her tone betraying curiosity. Ten million dollars. The foremans are getting one million dollars for finding it. She looked directly at Nate and smiled. And they're giving us half. Half of what? Nate asked. He hadn't quite fully registered what she had said, and his mind had trouble accepting that it could be real. Half a million dollars, she replied. Holy cow, Emily answered. That's a lot of hot pockets. Half a million dollars, Nate said. Half a million dollars, Jennifer confirmed. Nate mentally subtracted the expenses rainy day investigations had incurred since its hasty inception, then divided that sum into the remainder of the figure. They could easily keep on going for years with that money. Even if they didn't get any more paying cases, they were set. What was it you were going to say? Jennifer asked. What? You were going to tell me something. It seemed important. Nate shook his head. Nothing. I just wanted to ask how things had gone with my mother and Sam. You never filled me in. Yeah, well, that's your fault, Jennifer said. You've been acting weird lately. Hello, called a voice from the kitchen. Eleanor poked her head into the office. She had a couple grocery bags in her hands. Here you are. I was ringing the bell forever. You really should keep that door locked, dear, she said to Nate. Someone could dognap Madge. Madge whined at the sound of her name. What's in the bags, Mrs. R.? Emily asked. Lunch. I thought I would make all of you my famous lasagna. Dr. Day told me you mostly eat meat pockets. Hot pockets, Emily corrected. She turned to Nate. We're out of pepperoni, she reported. Jennifer shot her a reproachful look. What? It's not like you guys can't afford it. Well, today you're getting lasagna with fresh-made pasta. Can you give me a hand, Nate? Nate was still in shock that his mother was here and not complaining about him cutting her off from her psychic friends. Sure, he said. Nate got up and took the bags from Eleanor as she led him back into the kitchen. I assume you have a pasta roller? I do, he said. He set the bags on the counter, then pulled out a stainless steel pasta maker from one of the cabinets. What's all the excitement? Eleanor asked. A case, Nate said. The one with the little boy who can talk to ghosts? Ghost, Nate corrected, then added, allegedly. Eleanor laughed. Your father always said you were stubborn, she remarked. Nate didn't notice it at first, but there was something different about how his mother referred to his father. Usually, it was in the present tense. Something like, Your father always says you're stubborn. But now, she wasn't acting as if she had just been talking to him. She was recalling a fond memory. I get that from you, Nate pointed out. Yes, you do, she said. Eleanor turned to Nate. She stared at him lovingly. But you got your eyes from your father, and your sense of honor and loyalty, and that annoying habit of always putting others before yourself. Nate felt his eyes starting to tear up. He'd never heard his mother talk about him like that before. He'd always felt that his resemblance to his father only served as a reminder to his mother that her husband had passed away. You were right, she said. About what? Nate asked. Well, not about me being able to talk to your father. I know I'll never be able to convince you, but I've accepted that. She reached out and wiped away a tear that was rolling down his cheek. You were right that I shouldn't be spending all of my time and money to do it. I've been spending so much effort trying to hang on to my relationship with Ben that I forgot I was neglecting my relationship with you. Nate reached out and grabbed his mother in a tight hug mostly to hide the torrent of tears now streaming from his eyes. I love you, Mom. I know, dear. I love you, too. Now let me go. I can't breathe. The two of them laughed as Nate loosened his grip. Should I come back another time? Dave asked. He was standing at the entrance to the kitchen with his backpack slung over one shoulder. No, come on in. You're in for a treat today. My mom's making us lasagna, Nate told him. Dave held up his phone. Emily texted me that we got some good news. We're getting a foosball table, Emily announced. Nate turned and saw that Emily and Jennifer were standing at the opposite side of the kitchen. Geez, had everyone been watching him cry with his mom? We're not getting a foosball table, Jennifer countered. But we are getting a share of the million-dollar finder's fee the foreman's collected for recovering that diamond necklace. No kidding, Dave asked. Half a million dollars, Jennifer said. What? Eleanor asked. You didn't say anything about a million dollars, she scolded Nate. Does this mean you can finally stop living out of your van, Dr. Day? Dave asked. All eyes turned to Jennifer. What is he talking about? Nate asked. Who told you? Jennifer asked Dave, ignoring Nate's question. I'm not an idiot, Dave answered. I've almost been a PhD for over five years now. You don't live in your van. You have an apartment in that building off campus. I dropped you off there. Jeez, some detective you are, Emily said. Jennifer shrugged. I didn't know how to explain it to you, and I know you've been worrying about money. Well, hopefully with this reward, you don't have to worry about such silly things. Honestly, I wish you two would get a room already, Eleanor said. Mom, Nate said. We're with you on that one, Mrs. R., Emily added. She has a boyfriend, Nate said to Eleanor. I do? Jennifer asked. Nate turned to Jennifer. Sam? he said. Aren't you two friends? Jennifer asked rhetorically. Yes, we are. I've known him for years. He's a nice guy, but he's not really my type. I just assumed, Nate added weakly. He addressed his mother. We're business partners, Mom. There is nothing else between us, he said, then turned to Jennifer for confirmation. Right? Jennifer took a second to reply, feeling all the eyes in the room on her. Right, she agreed. I guess I'll get started on looking for a new apartment, assuming we can use part of the finder's fee for Dave's stipend. Of course, that goes without saying, Nate added, glad the subject had been changed. Eleanor was the one who finally broke through all the awkwardness she had created. All right. If none of you have anything better to do, you can help me make lunch. Nate stood back and watched as Eleanor started assigning tasks to the staff of Rainy Day Investigations. How quickly things had turned around from just a few short minutes earlier. He had been on the verge of calling the whole thing off, and now they were closer than ever. Not only had he gotten his mother back, but this old house that had always been filled with family when he was a boy was once again bustling with excitement and love. Jennifer was slicing tomatoes. She glanced over at Nate with that infectious smile on her face that exuded eternal optimism. Nate resolved to never doubt her again. Besides, even if rainy day investigations did turn out to be a bust, they could always open a restaurant. Epilogue Greg and Marcia sat on either side of the children, all of them crammed onto the sofa watching a movie, while Danny and Daisy ate popcorn from a big bowl perched on Daisy's lap. I know it's going to happen, Danny said teasingly. Don't tell me, that's not fair, Daisy protested. Danny, don't tease your sister, Greg warned. How can you possibly know what's going to happen? This movie is twenty years old, Marcia said. Danny looked at his mother, then over at one of the empty armchairs. Marcia turned her gaze over to the chair. Maureen, what did I tell you about secret conversations with Danny? She says she's sorry, Danny reported. Marcia ruffled Danny's hair, then put her arm around him and squeezed. Maureen smiled as she watched Marcia try to hold on as Danny struggled to squirm out of her grasp. Although it was something she would never do with her own child, she enjoyed the vicarious experience nonetheless. She was grateful that the foreman had accepted her presence. Sometimes it seemed that Daisy almost could hear her, and she wondered, if in time, that the little girl would see her as Danny did. The guest room was now officially Maureen's again. Marcia had framed and hung some of the photos from the box Danny had found in the attic on the walls, and set them on the dresser so she could enjoy them whenever she wanted. Set prominently in the middle of all of Maureen's memories was a family photo of the Foreman's standing in front of the old farmhouse. She had finally gotten the family she had always wanted. Jennifer and Nate will return in Farsight A Rainy Day Investigation. Thank you for listening to Afterlife A Rainy Day Investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. Remember to subscribe, share, Rate and review not only this podcast but the novel you are currently listening to. The links to Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads are in the description for this episode. You can sign up for the Insomniacs newsletter at bedtimestories.studio and get a free bookmark. And if you want to know more about the Rainy Day Investigations paranormal mystery book series, visit rainyandday.com. That's R A N E Y and D A Y E.com. You can find out more about the host of Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs at richhosick.com. Thanks again, and all the very best.